Hello and welcome to today's PropCast, produced for Income Analytics. I'm Andrew Teacher, founder of Blackstock Consulting. And we're going to be talking a lot today around the uh, what the market looks like over the coming months and how people can use data to get a better snapshot of risk looking forward past the COVID-19 crisis. Now, I'm joined today by Professor Andrew Baum, who's an advisor to Income Analytics and Professor of Practice at Side Business School, the University of Oxford, and also by Matthew Hopkinson, who's the Chief Commercial Officer at Income Analytics. Now, prior to co-founding the business, uh, Matthew has over 20 years of experience that, that covers all areas of the sector, really ranging from CoStar and more recently the local data company where he established the UK's leading data and insights business on the retail sector and has essentially been the face of the uh, the growing retail crisis over the last 10 years. Uh, and I worked quite closely with Matthew actually during my years back at the BPF and, and we had, uh, well, I was going to say not, not great amounts of fun uh, looking at the decline of the market, but certainly uh, we work very closely helping helping better inform policy, I'd like to think anyway. Now, income analytics allows the real estate industry to access, analyze, and deploy company credit data on tenants, real estate assets, and investment portfolios. Its sole focus is income. And as the gentleman explained in our conversation, income analytics aims to sit alongside other platforms to measure and benchmark performance. And also, fundamentally help people manage risk and understand what's to come as we emerge from the current crisis. Matthew, obviously you've been involved in the world of data in real estate for some time. Uh, your previous role at local data companies has, has almost made you the face of retail decline, I, I'm sorry to say, over the last 10, 11 years. Um, so in, in terms of this new business, it, it obviously covers far more than just retail, doesn't it? So what 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 is it you're looking to cover and, and how, uh, you know, you know I, I guess one other question is, is why the hell would you start a new business now? It seems like utter, utter madness, utter madness. Yeah, well, you, you might have a point there, but I think the, um, I think the, the, the key point and, and where I come from is, actually leveraging data to make better decisions because we've got a lot of data we've got a lot of computing power but not everyone's making better decisions because actually they don't know quite what to do or they're overwhelmed this business is specifically looking at all sectors and looking at the risk associated with tenants paying uh, their rent and typically rent is the last thing that people stop paying before business goes bust We'll also see that, and retail is a classic case in point, the complex funding structure of companies and therefore understanding where a company is within a family tree and globally to therefore come back to understand again, is there associated risk with the parent of that company that might be sitting on your, on your lease? So it's still about the data and it's about leveraging it and making sure it's current to update that risk profile against a value so that's the sort of the primary purpose of the business uh, and uh, in terms of that decision making process what are those those indicators that you think people could be uh, making better use of what you know, what are what are the what are what are the sort of missed opportunities so to speak so i think that the missed opportunities is that primarily um people look at the credit worthiness of businesses um and there are some other bits that sit within the data, we use the Dun & Bradstreet-based data, which is the sort of primary global uh, credit rating agency. And what we essentially are looking at is the failure rate of businesses. And we've gone back to 2007 and analysed 
hundreds of millions of businesses every day and looked at the risk of failure, and that's by type of business, by sector, and by country. And that essentially gives you a failure rate, a failure score. So a bit, like the R, that, bit like the R score everyone's familiar with right now. Absolutely. We call it the Incans Global Score. So you're able to look at a failure rate in Germany and compare it to a failure rate in the UK, the US, etc. So that's key. The second really important thing is that when you look at a credit report, a typical credit report, you only get 12 months uh, look forward. Now, obviously, everybody's on 7, 10 plus years on a lease. And therefore, to understand your full exposure, we go out to 10 years and give a uh, a percentage rate of failure against a particular business looking out 10 years. And then the final sort of key bit is that when you look at um, how people are investing, people are investing across multi-asset and multi-classes. And therefore, you need to have something, and commercial property has been appalling at it, that enables people to look at a bond and to look at a property and understand the similarity. So we've created an equivalent bond rating against companies and then able to roll it up into buildings, funds and portfolios. And that's essentially what we're doing. So it means that people coming in on the debt side have an equally equally transparent vista into the underlying asset. Massively. So you might look at a large office building and um, you can then put the income into tranches based on equivalent bond rating and therefore uh, the the deals that you'll get on the loans and the debt on that might vary based on the risk profile mm. of the income associated with the building. Okay, well, look, let's bring in Professor Andrew Baum, who's uh, an advisor to income analytics and professor of practice in the business school at Oxford University. So, uh, uh, Andrew, you've presumably seen just a few cycles over the years. How does what we're seeing right now compare to 80s, 90s and, and, and other, other periods of downturn? I don't think there's much doubt that it's it's unique. There are no um, there are no analogies really that that will guide us through this particular crisis. The um, I've seen three crises: 1974 when I just graduated, 1990, and 2007. And uh, this is unlike any of those. It's not a it's going to have a it's going to have a, an impact on on finances to the point where we will have a financial crisis as a result of it. But of course, it's um, it's created by something completely different, and we've never seen anything like it before. Um, whether we see anything like it again in the future, I think is is an open question. But um, no. Uh, and and to what degree then uh, is having dynamic and real time data and 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 a really fluid global uh, insight? important you know because obviously this isn't something that that people will have had in the 70s it's not something people have had in the dot-com crash um and 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 where are you i guess where where do you see the platform income analytics helping people right now well i mean i think the platform is particularly useful right now but it's not the coronavirus that makes this system interesting or useful you know the since 19 sorry since 2007 2008 We've had a, a, a property market which is characterised by um, very low interest rates and therefore a, a large number of investors, huge number of investors, desperately trying to capture higher yields through buying real estate assets. So 
Um, when you know you can only get a one percent yield or less than that now on a on a ten year government bond, if you can get a four percent yield on a property portfolio, then that looks incredibly attractive. So income becomes the driver. You know, inc- income is the reason why ninety percent of professional property investors hold the asset, and yet they know very little about the strength of the income that they're they're holding. So before the coronavirus, we we you know we we knew that this was a a really important part of the market with insufficient data tools for people to get a grip on. And so people were blindly diversifying, not really knowing whether they've got high quality portfolios or low quality portfolios. Their definition of quality would be more to do with the appearance of the building than the technical stuff like, you know, the the quality of the income that's being paid. So this was a this was something that was needed well before the coronavirus. And it just so happens that this has put a real focus on the income quality right Mm. And, and how do you weight the two? How do you weight the the the, the value of, of the physical underlying asset, its residual value, versus the the, the quality of income? Because I guess some would say if if, if the building uh, if the building is great, the, the and it's in a fantastic place, you should be able to relet that, which reduces the significance of having a poor quality tenant versus a situation where the asset is is in a less desirable location and is uh, going to be harder to let. That's a great point, Andy. The problem is I think we we know less and less about what a great asset is and what a great location is. You know, there's so much disruption now um, that's coming through um, co-working, working from home, the retail challenge. I mean, the fact is that most tenants prefer to stay in their building. That You know, they don't want to move. It's expensive to move. So once you've got a tenant in place, they're, they're likely to be to continue to be there. But the quality of the building itself and the location, I think, is becoming less and less of a uh, something you can bank on. And I think you really need to understand what the what the quality of the income you're receiving is wherever you are. You know, and and you know, understanding the difference between a, a tenant that's that's 100% leveraged in the high street with a great brand in a great building that may never relet because there's a sort of you know, a crisis going on in the high street compared to a nice diversified pool of low low leverage tenants in a retail warehouse park or an office building. I think understanding that just requires some science. You know, it requires some state, some basic data, some basic statistics that the property market has just got by without. Mm. And and do you think there's a is there a missed opportunity there? Should shareholders be demanding that that particularly listed companies that are massively exposed to all of this? Uh, should, you know, should should they be demanding some sort of reporting around this in their reports that they don't currently? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, the listed sector is one one example. I mean, in the unlisted sector, you know, we have these private property funds, unlisted property funds, lots of them run by you know M and G, Aviva, that, that you know, everybody with a brand in the financial market, and they they self brand the risk of these things. So they call them either core funds or core plus or opportunist opportunistic. They shouldn't be allowed to self brand these funds. They should be objectively determined. The risk level should be objectively determined. Who should think- determine them? Is that, is that something for the RICS? Who, or, or who who is it? Because I can, you make a good point, and I think, and this is something I think we've seen on on you know for retail investors, haven't we? Really, with not just with uh, you know, well, obviously mainly around the gating of property 
funds and 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 a lot of people shoving their their life savings into one or two funds through these DIY platforms, not really understanding what they're buying, uh, and, and then and then crying blood to the Daily Mail when when the values go through the floor. Yeah, so, you you, have to, you make a great point, Andy. A really great point. So there's a panic, you know, a bit of a panic going on in the open-ended fund market, but nobody's looking at the income quality that that's behind those funds. So some funds should be oversold and some shouldn't but people can't distinguish between them very well at the moment but, but who should be the person regulating this is this something for the fca who, who yeah. is it that it should be the fca yeah i mean real estate you know ma- the managers are regulated um the funds themselves may not be but the but this should be an issue for the financial conduct authority uh, uh, Matthew Hopkinson, let, let, let's bring you back in. What what do you think? Um, you know, what do you see in the current environment? Um, that that what, what's the data telling you about the current environment, and, and how people can look to 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 emerge from it? Well, I think, I think a really interesting challenge, and in that um, the, the various clients we've picked up in the last two weeks around understanding um, who out of your tenants who can pay won't pay and who can't pay won't pay is a fundamental issue because i think that in the recent thing with the furlough and everything everyone's almost thrown their arms up in the air and said right okay everyone's in this we're not paying anything we're furloughing everyone we'll we'll wait for the storm to pass a bit like a typhoon or a hurricane and then we'll pop our head out and it'll be okay but um and businesses you know, are so heavily indebted, they've not been carrying any reserves. And none of them have planned to have uh, such a situation and no one could have forecast it. So I think that by having this ability to understand it, the million dollar question is that if you looked at these companies and you split them out and said, okay, which were strong companies have now had a short or long-term impact as a result of coronavirus. But there are other companies, uh, you know, dogs or whatever you want to say, that have been dragging along for years. And if you specifically look in retail, which, um, you know, I know fairly well, is, you know, these companies are the thing that sort of took it down. So before it was Brexit, um, and then before that it was, well, it's the internet, uh, it's business rates. Well, they're fundamentally weak businesses. Uh, And as Darwin says, uh, you know, survival of the fittest is about the ability to change. I mean, I I think, I think, I guess, some would argue that Matthew, because I I guess a lot of businesses in the in the retail hospitality sphere were potentially strong businesses, but for other reasons, such as business rates, you mentioned something that that you and I have obviously talked massively about over the years, but also the way that the acquisitions and M and A have taken place with with pretty decent businesses being saddled with massive debt by investment houses that come in. Uh, that, that, that buy up the businesses, that put the debt on their balance sheets, and, and that often drags them down. And, and we don't need to name names, but there are a number mm. of, of, of big brands that that's occurred with. Absolutely. Yeah, go on, Andy, yeah. Sorry, I d- just wanted to say, I think you've made a, a brilliant point, Andy, and you know, that I think we should name names. You know, There are plenty of businesses that were sound businesses. You take Kath Kidston, for example. It was sold to a, a U.S private equity firm in 2010. It went from being a, a pretty sound business to a heavily indebted business. You know, it's a it's an outrage that these PE funds load these companies with debt and then go to the government and claim claim relief. You know, it's just outrageous. And Kath Kidston was sold to another PE firm in 2016. It had six on the branches. They've all closed. 
Uh, one of one of the companies I work with has now got an empty shop unit closed by Kath Kidston, simply because it was it was overburdened with with massive debts by the private equity firm that bought it. And so the public don't know enough about this. You know, they think that the you know, these brands on the high street are sound brands or not sound brands. I, mean, I remember looking at the AA and Saga, for example. You'd think that the AA and Saga are both sort of reliable brands aiming, you know, appealing to older people. And yet they're both owned by a PE fund that's saddled them with 120% debt. So, you know, this this is one of the problems in the, you know, why you need this data about the the financial so you can, stability you can look through tenants. and you, you can peer into the void and you can tell people this stuff using income analytics. Yeah, you can, because the key thing, this is why we use the DUNS number, the global number. You so can just explain to, us the, explain to us about the DUNS number, because some people might not know too much about that. Yeah, so the DUNS number, so Dun & Bradstreet, so when we get the data, we match it into the Dun & Bradstreet universe of 330 million companies. A DUNS number is wholly unique. It's only ever used once. And therefore, you're able to look at the relationship between that company and its various parents and operating entities. And so a really it's a bit like, a, like a super Experian credit check for companies across the globe. It, it is, and you've got this massive family tree. So if you're looking at WeWork, for example, and their various SPVs, you can see exactly where they all are and how they then roll up to the actual top entity. And then you're able to look at each level. Sounds like a journalist's wet dream, this. Well, it is. So you're able to look into (laughs) each, you know, a level of that entity and understand the risk. So understand where is the debt and where is the equity. And if, for example, you might say on my lease, this seems to have a strong covenant. And quite often property people say undoubted covenant and all this kind of stuff. But the question is, actually, when you look two up, you find that actually uh, you've got a basket case. And when the basket case goes down, it will mean that the tenant on your lease will not be able to pay its rent and will also be folded. And with retail and other areas where you've seen flat packing of assets and CVAs, this is why I think it's more important than ever to be having your finger on the pulse about the risk and how that's a changing day by day. Um, so, Andrew, in terms of the the you know coming coming out from this, um, do you see do you see there being a credit crunch as there was? in 2008 2009 obviously the costs of lending are, are going up banks are, are now looking a bit more carefully about where they are allocating uh finance um is real estate going to lose out do you think competing against other other needs other asset classes what, what can we expect i think we can absolutely expect a credit crunch i, I you know you can put the, the certainty of that at 90 odd percent um yeah, bank lending is going to be extremely tight and banks are going to be very, very careful about what they're lending against. I think they need to, you know, understand the risks of the portfolios that, that, that provide their security, definitely. And, and, and how do you think that's going to affect people, um, people that do need to refinance? Obviously, the, the debt pile reported by the, uh, you know, the Montford study, now the CAS study, uh, that, yeah, that we don't have the same debt issues certainly in the banking system that we had 2008 2009 but that there's obviously a fair amount of uh, a fair amount of outstanding debt that does need to be that will need to come come back around the next year or two so uh, yeah what? yeah um well th- this this time around will be different from last time around you know last, last time around we had a a loan to value crisis so um most of the income got paid through the last financial crisis, and what what was damaged was the the loan to value ratio. So property values fell, 
the amount of debt outstanding remained very high. It meant that most loans were defaulting on the on the on their valuation covenant, but they were still paying their rent and therefore covering their interest. So banks were in a reasonably comfortable position. If we get to a situation where incomes start to fall, so values might maintain because of low interest rates, but you might you're now going to switch the focus to the income cover ratio and the income cover covenants. And they're going to be under real stress now. So that that really will put the banking system under a lot of pressure. Mm. Uh, and Matthew, going forward, then, um, what are the sorts of businesses that you're you're currently working with already, uh, and, and how you know what sorts of uses are they putting the platform uh, to use with? Yeah, so there's a really interesting mix. So from some of the property agents, some of the funds, UK and European funds. Uh, we've been having conversations with some uh, US funds that have interests over here, um, some fairly well-known government uh, organisations who have got uh, an interesting level of tenants. And I think it's not necessarily just about the big tenants. The interesting bit is the tail uh, of understanding that tail of these smaller businesses um, as well as in the, and, and the risks associated there. And then also... Um, we are we, we've got some a lot of interest from private equity because they're now reappraising and thinking well we've never looked at this before but actually we need it now to look at it and um, I think the the bit, interesting bit is if you took what we're doing and then you also apply what's been in the press recently about uh, who is paying rent and who isn't paying rent it starts to become very very interesting to this point that I mentioned before about who genuinely cannot pay the rent. Um, to the landlords and who is trying it on um, because all of these things are causing massive stress in the system and the question is is it you know genuine stress for genuine reasons or are people playing the game mm-hmm. uh, and Andrew just just to wrap things up then um, you know in terms of the uh, in, in terms of people that are looking for opportunities where do you think some of those are going to fall over the next few months or so as we as we start to emerge from this? Obviously, there's going to be, a, there has been a, a large amount of repricing um, in, in different areas. But uh, at what point do you think we're going to be able to tell, uh, and, and and how advisable is it to 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 come into the market right now? Well, it's pretty it's pretty dangerous to pile into the market right now. But I think there are going to be some very interesting mispriced portfolios for sale later this year. And um, the the data that you're going to need, and you're going to have a little, you're not going to have a lot of comfort looking at property values. You know, nobody really knows where we're going to go to and where interest rates going to go, interest rates are going to go, all that sort of stuff. So I think well, you know, I, I know it's some, higher, are they? I don't think they are. No. So um, so there will there will be a continued and increasing focus on income. I mean, I you know, I I think I think you can't get away from it. You know, it's an income asset, and increasingly so. Well, thank you very much to Matthew Hopkinson, who's the Chief Commercial Officer at Income Analytics, and Professor Andrew Baum, who's Professor of Practice at the Side Business School, University of Oxford. If you'd like to hear more information about Income Analytics, please head to incomeanalytics.com. If you'd like to subscribe to some of our future propcasts, please go to Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud, or any other platform, and just search Propcast. That's P-R-O-P-Cast. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please head to the Blackstock Consulting website. And thank you very much for listening. Thing.